Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or app store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hi, I'm Jason Phelps and I'm the new host of Cutting the Distance. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I've been hunting for about as long as I can remember. It didn't take long though for my love of hunting to turn into a love of calling animals in. This obsession ultimately led me to starting Phelps Game Calls back in 2009. Since then, I've learned damn near everything there is to know about building calls, as well as how to use them effectively in the field. Get them close. That's always been my mantra. In my opinion, there isn't a more exciting way to hunt. So in this podcast, we're going to cover everything about using the calls, everything about the hunting tactics that surround using the calls, as well as times when using calls just isn't the right thing to do. So how do we get there? We get there through questions from you. We get there by leveraging my own personal experience which is going to include a lot of failures and a lot of success. And we get there through conversations with experts on topics we are tackling and discussing. Now, without further ado, let's dive right in. Turkey season is right around the corner. So on this first episode of Cutting the Distance with Jason Phelps, it's all about turkeys. Today I'll be discussing a project my good buddy Stephen Ranella and I have been working on for the past year, as well as dive into some of Steve's personal tips and tactics to help you harvest the turkey this season. All right, one of the big components of this podcast is going to be your questions, the users, the listeners. Um, since this is the first episode, we're going to go to Steve for uh, a user-generated question. Okay, I got a question about the questions, though. How do people submit questions? So I'm going to submit stuff all the time. <laughs> You're going to be, number, be like, this dude again? You know, like on uh, Facebook, how you get like number one top fan or like the yeah, top user. You're going to have that at the, yeah, okay, perfect. Be me. That's how I'm uh, going to find, that's how I'm going to find. I'll be like. So we're going to scour all of our uh, social media channels, Instagram, Facebook. Um, we're going to also have an email set up, ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com. If you have any specific questions you want us to try to hit. Uh, hit on and then they can put feedback in there too yeah yeah if you really you're like that's so I mean, stupid yeah but no we're we're wanting just more positive just feedback. Po- if you have negative yeah. feedback you can send it to steve yeah you don't want you don't want jason to get deflated yeah yeah so here's my question ready 
Ready. I'm not sending. I'm not emailing. I'm just going to tell you right now. Okay. Mike to Mike. It's a two. It's a three part, but they're quick. What's the longest you've ever seen a diaphragm call last? How do most people ruin them? And like, how do you take care of them and store them? Okay. Number one, I can remember, I can remember this call. It was a purple piece of uh, tape, had a star on it. Cause that was my number one call. And I took, I babied that call. Um, I think I got four or five years out of it. Competi- oh, competition calling and everything. No kidding. Yeah. Baby. Oh, see, I thought you were going to say like 18 months. No, no. Oh. When this call, when I knew it just, it hit and it, it did everything it was supposed to without me having to try too hard. I put a star on it. I would take it out of the fridge, take it to my contest, use it, take it home, wash it with some cold water, let it dry on the counter, put it back in the fridge. Um, so that one call. So that me. sort of answers how you take care of them. a little bit. Yeah. But there's, um, Oh, then, then hit me with like, how do, what's the most besides setting? No, it could be cause I've, I've cooked a couple. Yeah. Leaving them on your dashboard oh, when it's 95 da- degrees. Dashboard <laughs> is, I mean, cause you, you get the, you know, the, the window, you know, basically turning into magnifying glass, hitting your latex. Yep. Um, even without the glass, I mean, you, you put that thing in the sun for two or three days and it's shot. Um, you put it in front of the glass on a 90 degree day and it's, it's done in a what day. What about washing machine? You ran it through a washing machine? Washing machine? It, it just depends. Sometimes it'll just toast them. Sometimes they're perfectly fine. What about a clothes dryer? Clothes dryer, no good. It'll um, be, that heat. If yeah. you run it through a clothes dryer, you might as well pitch it. Yeah, that heat, it usually separates the glue on the tape as well as the heat just, you know, kind of kind of tears up. That but it latex. might survive a washing machine. It could. Yep. We've had calls survive the washing machine that fall out in the bottom, pick them up in there. Just as good as the day I built Have them. you ever seen one survive like a dude uh, leaves his in his bino harness or whatever the hell? I don't know. Leaves it in his... Okay, I got it. Leaves it in his turkey vest. So late May comes around, turkey vest goes into a corner of the closet. Yep. Next year he's like, shit, where's my... Oh, there it is. It's gonna. It's probably going to be good. It's probably um, fine. Yeah, yeah, no sun. And then as long as you don't put it through like extreme heat cycles... Um, they're usually pretty good. So Tur- in a shaded, like room temp closet, it's not a death sentence. Yeah. So turkey calls are different though. Cause usually they're made up of multiple layers, two, three, sometimes even four layers. You get your saliva all stuck between the layers. And if it kind of dries in there, you, you get some different issues. Um, you know, a lot of people make, you know, tooth, toothpick or they make reed spacers. So you can yep. get like a little bit of air lift in there to let all those layers dry out. Um, so a turkey call, as long as it's kind of allowed to dry properly, um, it should be fine in your turkey vest over, you know, from year to year. And you do want to get the spit off them. Yeah, ideally. You know, there's just bacteria and stuff in your mouth that, that breaks that latex down. Yeah. Um, you know, sugars, coffees, you know, choose, you know, snooze, whatever may be in your mouth. It just creates a bad environment for that latex. Oh, uh, buddy of mine, he always, uh, my neighbor, he always, I don't know why or how, he always brings atomic fireballs. Hunting? Yep. It's just his thing. <laughs> you got you to walk a long ways. He yep. pops in an atomic fireball. So I was out with him. Yeah. And I was feeling like, <laughs> I feel like an atomic fireball is not good for your diaphragm. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, cinnamon, uh, you know, I've got to imagine that's going to tear you down. It's I not even did, good for your tongue, dude. No, I haven't <laughs> did a specific study on atomic fireballs, but it can't be good. Um, store in the fridge. Store in the fridge. Um, wash it. Dry it off on the counter for a couple hours. Away from a window. Away from the sun. Um, and then oh, don't it, lay it in the window. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then uh, cold, uh, dark place is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we even recommend if it's going to be a while, you can throw it in the freezer. It's not going to hurt it. Oh, really? Letting it actually freeze. Huh. Kills bacteria that way, too. If there was anything, any residual on there versus in the fridge, it could potentially, you know, continue on. Let me, I got one more then. When you're, is there anything, like, you, there's no such thing as a warranty on a diaphragm, right? Because it's like sort of meant as like not a thing that lasts forever. 
Yeah. Like a warranty on a toothbrush. Yeah. I mean, we've always looked at diaphragms as consumable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, it, it's even tough for somebody to say, I've had a call for a month and, and it the latex is cracking. I don't know what that person did for a month, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but there is, if something's obviously, you know, tape falls off. We usually try to take care of people. We we listen, you know, story by story. I'm not giving any examples. So you might look and be like, this is something that was wrong on our end. Yeah, this could be a manufacturing defect. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like, we look at that customer about $100 in calls, and he's only complaining about one. You know, so it's obviously not the guy just trying to take us. Yeah, I got you. You know, so um, whether people want to hear that or not, like, that's how we look at it. Like, there, it's obviously, you know, or did somebody buy one call and that one call's you know, mysteriously bad after two weeks, like, you know, a, here's a 40% off code, like, you know, yeah, per, got you. I, I don't know. We, we play it case by case. We never try to, you know, decide before we hear all the, all the information. Got it. All right. So that could have been the listener right there. That could have been. Asking that, yeah. all those questions. Yeah. If you have similar questions to Steve's, uh, make sure to submit them to us, CTD at Phelps Game Calls or uh, any of our social channels. We'll try to round those up and uh, put them into the, uh, the next few podcasts and get them answered for you. Perfect. All right, so we've been talking about turkey calls for a long time, back ever since we started working together. And uh, your idea was probably like, I'd say two or three on like my crazy ass ideas I either didn't want to do or didn't think were going to work when you Mm -hmm. brought this to me. It was this idea that we were going to go somewhere, find a tree, a tree that was perfect for making turkey calls out of. We were going to go cut that tree down, not not somebody else, um, not you know, not the lumber yard. Nobody's going to source it. Nobody's going to buy it. We we're going to cut that tree down. We we're going to tell the story of that tree, the the property, um, the process that that tree had to go to, uh, or, or go through um, in order to become a turkey call. Um, which I think a lot of you know your idea. I believe I'm putting words in your mouth, but was the idea that people don't know the process that a tree goes through to become a turkey call and everything involved, um, and then tell that story. So uh, you brought me this idea. I didn't like it. You yeah, know. but I, I need to understand. I'll tell you why I liked it, but I need to understand um, what was the problem with it. It just disrupts my system, right? So my idea as a game call maker was you go to the lumber yard or you you log on to you know some specialty hardwood supplier. You order your 1,000 board feet of lumber, and it shows up perfect, ready to be built. Mint condition. Ready to to make calls. Whether it's me being lazy, whether whether whatever it was, like you just added like 14 extra steps. Because if it's it's a dud tree, it's not your problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. It would never make it to your – it would never make it to your – Yeah, yeah. So you like – you vetted out like all of that by just – you know, but it's also the lazy man's way. And, and once we got into, you know, this, this idea, um, I'm going to say that I probably ate crow a little bit and decided it was an, it was an awesome idea. And I'm glad I got, got to be a part of it. But, uh, your idea was to show this whole process. Like yeah. we would go cut the tree down. We were going to drive, you know, we didn't literally drive the truck in the trailer, but we followed the truck in the trailer with the log on it to the mill. Um, we pushed that, you know, bandsaw, you know, through the log, we made the decisions on the thickness the log needed to be based on, you know, warp and splitting and all the stuff that was going to happen. Um, we made the decision on, on, you know, where this was going to go. And so this was, this was your, um, idea that we kind of ended up partnering on and, and make it happen. Um, uh, you know, and, and it was, we ended up kind of coining it the line one turkey call, but I just wanted to, to spend the day, uh, you know, today's discussion and just kind of go over everything involved in this project, dive a little bit deeper and, and, uh, you kind of see if we can, you know, explain that project a little more to the use, uh, the listeners. Yeah. I want to, I want to touch a little bit of why I thought it was cool to do it. Um, 
my old man was a big woodworker. I'm not, uh, but he was very talented. And he, um, yeah, he was born during the Depression. Now you hear, you know, there's all these places that sell like recycled wood and all yep. this kind of stuff. And it's sort of like a thing. But to me, like the way he was, it just seemed like very frugal. You know, he'd make knife handles with just junk he found laying around. Um, I remember he did a bunch of siding and barn board from barn board he went and got from a barn. Uh, I remember they tore this brick building down and he got all the bricks and made me and my brothers chisel all the mortar off him so he could reuse the bricks. <laughs> so he's just into that kind of stuff. Yeah. But he built a cross when, when he, we built a pole barn ourselves on, on this piece of property that sat across the road from our house. And when we did that, we had to clear a couple oak trees out of the way. And we, I remember we went through all the hassle of getting those oak trees um, to get them milled and then getting all the planks and we just dried them in the garage, but getting all the planks and putting the stickers in and keeping them from warping them, turning them all the damn time. And then he died. And I eventually got that wood and worked on it myself and just cut it all into strips and laminated it all into these big oak tops. And so my desk in my office is from those trees. Nice. And my one of my smaller workbenches in my shop is made from those big pieces. And I just made these big slabs. They look like almost like a, you know, I'm sure anybody big can picture it. block. Yeah, it looks like a butcher block or like a, looks like you're looking at a bowling alley, whatever the hell, the lane in a bowling alley. So I, I kind of appreciated that stuff. And I thought that, um, like with Turkey Call, it'd just be interesting to see what all goes into it, you know? Yep. Because yeah. before I did that, I, had no, I didn't know about drying it and, and, yep. and you know, just, I don't know, the whole freaking no. process, man. It, yeah. was, it was really instructional. Yeah, we're kind of, um, as we're recording this podcast, we're kind of coming down the finish line. Everything's in production. Um, we're pretty damn excited about kind of what we're getting out of them. It's a, it's a really cool project. Um, and one thing I want to, exp- you got to see kind of the picture of this tree that we picked out. You know, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more, you know, how we, but man, this wood's, freaking beautiful like compared to what you do get at the lumber yard versus what we got out of this tree um like that we're pretty excited about just a beautiful call it's it, it's different than just your straight gain you know straight grained walnut that you get from the lumber yard i'm having a, um, a guy's making me a chef's knife that's, and that's yeah. why i'm stealing a little piece of that because i'm gonna oh, yeah. have a chef's knife off it too yeah no we're, we're getting those skills sent out to you yeah um, today actually i think but so. he wants he wants a piece with a lot of character Yep, we we were searching for some swirl and some some edges and some crotches um, out of it, so we'll get you some some good pieces. Yeah, I want the real, yeah, the crazy parts. Perfect. So uh, the release of this line one kind of was hinged on the Meat Eater X Phelps release of Turkey Calls last year. Um, we released a full line of calls, um, did very very well. So some may ask, you know, you know, and we, maybe we already answered this: is is why would we we do this line one turkey call? What's a need for line one turkey call out there? And I'm gonna I'm gonna see if you can answer that. Like, why do we need this call? Oh, because I, I think it'd just be, I don't know, if I had, you know, you you buy something, you get like a little thing with some pictures of you know whatever you buy it, you get a catalog. I don't know from whatever the hell company you like, and there's pictures of like the people making stuff and. That you kind of like meet who works there and you see everything. I just like, why not have, if you could have a call that you could refer to, um, like a video that showed this walnut tree grown in Kansas, I'll point out not far from Walnut, Kansas. Yep. And you can kind of like see every aspect of the tree in its context. And then 
have like drone footage of the tree dropping out of the canopy and then see the whole thing made, it would be like you like really understood every bit of it. The same way I think that one of the things I've always done with the stuff I make is we show an animal and then later we show things that came from it to eat. And pe- that, like people love seeing the transformation. So it's not like I would come and say like, you know, I don't have the technical expertise to come and be like, oh, there's something about the harmonics of this wood. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just like, it's a, a cool thing to look and get a numbered, to get a numbered call where you know there's a finite number of calls that could come from a tree, get a get like a video product showing everything about how it was made, and then in the end, you're holding the thing, and it, like, it'll be a great hunting tool. You're holding a thing and able to hunt with it, and you have its whole history right down to the location of where the stump is. Um, it's just like a, it's, it's a fun thing. I think that anything that comes with sort of more awareness and knowledge, you know, I remember my, uh, mother-in-law had this, this floor in a house that was an old, the wood from a sheep shearing shed and it had all the lanolin like mixed on in the, you could feel it on the wood. Right. I thought that was a cool ass floor. Yeah. Because it's just like there's like something about <laughs> the it. story that went behind yeah, it. Yeah, it's like it, it just it, made it like cool, you yeah. know? Yeah, that, that's acceptable. I, In my I, office, I have a brick. Um, You'd look at it and think it was any old brick. It happens to be a brick that came from Jim Bridger's general store when it was dismantled. Anyone else would be like, oh, he's got a red brick on his desk. I'd be like, listen, dude, it's not just any red <laughs> this brick. This is a special brick. That was from Jim Bridger's store, man. Yeah. If you if I died and didn't tell anybody, no one would know. Yeah, but it just were, has like a thing about it that gives yeah. it substance. I'm gonna still. So I think these calls have like I don't know. It just it's cool, man. I might have to borrow it one day off your desk. My brick. Yeah. Don't build it into something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's somewhere in this house. <laughs> so we flew to Kansas shortly after the Fourth of July with the intention. At that time, I believe the intention was just to cut a black walnut tree down. Yep. Um, went on the ground. We decided. Um, to also take an Osage Orange, also known as Bodark, also known as Hedge. Bodark. It's Boy, yeah. boy D-Ark. It's like B-O-I-S apostrophe D. Like wood for, making, wood for making bows. Yeah, it, literally by definition, wood for bows. Um, so we decided, hey, that they got a bunch of Hedge here just as well. We, they've got a, a great walnut tree. Oh, can we can we talk about Hedge for another second? Sure. These guys, uh, I didn't realize about Hedge. Makes a hell of a fence post. Oh yeah, ne- never raw. It's like, yeah, um, lost forever, and it's like a pretty fixed market value. And these guys, we were, these guys we were with that owned this mill was like, if there's nothing else to do, you can always make some money cutting hedge fence posts. <laughs> it's kind of like they're like th- talking about throughout their lives, like various times when it's like you just can cut it, you can get it from owners because it's it's otherwise not a high value tree. Um, it's like always in the background and be like, if you need to make a couple bucks, you could always cut. Cut or uh, cut, boat art, hedge, fence you, posts. You want to know another interesting fact about fence post hedge? Like some of the when the the osage or the hedge is used as a fence post for 60, 80, 100 years, and it it's able to like basically wick or absorb some of that mud. Some of that mud stained osage is like some of the highest valued timber out there. Oh, is that right? Yeah, they, like it's super sought out. So I'm going to start a business where I just go around and like replace old farmers fence posts with like a piece of walnut. So I can grab that hedge post out. Oh, yeah, and go sell like that. a fence post relocation business. Clay uh, Clay Newcomb says it outlasts the the fencing. 
Yeah. Oh, that it, it's amazing. That it's just beautiful when the it's almost like just the, um, you know, the just streaks get sucked up into that hedge, and so you get like a really beautiful, yeah. you know, wood layup. So another little. Um, let's rewind a little bit before we went and and picked up, you know, the walnut and the osage. Like, how did we come? I think I to the decision that we we're going to do a pot and a striker. I know the answer because I've talked to you a lot about what you use. Because that's just what uh, I like. Yeah. Man. Yeah. yeah um, we like. had we had the option to make box calls. You know. Um, you know, pot calls, you know, slotted, slotted pot calls. Like there's all these different ideas. And we said, we can do, you know, basically we can do anything within the turkey call line. And, and, uh, you know, Steve's like, we're going with a pot. I carry, I've carried around box calls for a, the first time I ever went in the woods with a turkey calls a box call. And I mean, I remember this, like, I remember knowing so little that we'd be out and forget the chalk. And I remember sitting there with a leather man trying to pulverize sandstone <laughs> <laughs> to rub, I'm not joking. Just While hunting, pulverized sandstone in sort of a makeshift mortar and pestle <laughs> as a way to try to like chalk the box. But here's the thing with me is, let's say you, know, you got your turkey vest now, you got all everything in your freaking turkey vest, right? You got your diaphragms, you got your box, um, you got a pot and peg, you got whatever the hell else, your little hands, yep, this, any, any, whatever device you got. Yep. If I all of a sudden walking down a road, Okay, walking down a farm lane and pow, a gobbler gobble 75 yards away. I, in that situation, I always, always grab the pot. Yep. I think everybody, I think. Like, it's just like, I'm like, if I'm going to kill this bird, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And in that situation, I bet you 99.9% of hunters aren't going to their box call, you know, and that. So I I think they got more utility. They get used a lot more. Um, I just just have like more, um. Yeah, man, I just have more faith that it's enjoyable for me to do it too. Like, like I enjoy that, you know. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy messing with one, and I know that like when I pull it out, I'm gonna like get what I want from it. Yep, you know. Yeah. Um, and I and I see like you know I got a friend, one of the best turkey hunters I know, uh, Robert Abernathy. He's been on the show with us. He's a, like a turkey biologist, been hunting turkeys for a million years. Um. All over the place, right? He's hunted turkeys in 27 states, something like that. Uh, and man, he, that dude can locate turkeys with a box. Yep. Like, he's got we, a signature locating, these just loud, yeah. aggressive cuts. And you're almost kind of like, when he does it, you're almost like, he's really? Yeah. But then <laughs> off in the distance, pow. Yep. You know? Yeah, there's, it, that's what frustrates me. There's days, um, I remember my wife's first turkey um, would not answer anything else. And it pisses me off because I'm, I'm a good diaphragm caller. I'm a good on a pot call. I'm good on an owl, you know, crow. And then you'd only answer this damn box call. Back in the day, I was using like the, I think the Primo's heartbreaker, you know? Yo, I, yeah, um, I saw yeah. That, yeah. So I was just cranking on it and that thing answered. And I literally had to like box call him all the way into shotgun range because he would not answer oh, any, really? any other call. So it was just, it, it was, you know, I'm glad I had it in the turkey vest, but it was just one of those things. Like there are times where it works, you know, on windy mornings, you know, or just like a dense foggy morning where sound isn't traveling. Like when know, Abernathy gets a box. strike, when he gets a strike off that box call though, you know, the first thing he does, what's that? Puts the box call away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that was, it was a And then he's heading in that yep. direction, man. Yep. He like, the box call goes away. It's not coming back out. Yeah. And he's like, shoo. <laughs> Heading that way. <laughs> so we fly into um, Kansas City, Missouri. We drive a little ways. I think it was about an hour and a half. And we decided on Union Uniontown, Kansas is where we we're going to cut this tree down. And 
And I'd like to tell some big story on why, but it was really, uh, I had a good buddy, um, Randy Milligan, who uh, I got to hunt with last spring. Um, I think we'd advertise on a podcast, like, hey, we're looking for somebody with a tree. And then I think I got like 40 or 50. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah 40 or 50 emails that came from Corey uh, Calkins here at the Meat Eater, like everybody offering up their tree. And it's just, you know, it just didn't have the right feel. You know, you're like, you got to come to somebody. Is it going to be the right tree? Is it kind yep. of pre-scouted? And uh, my good buddy Randy had, had reached out and said, hey, I got I got hedge. I've got, you know, all kinds of black walnut, hickory. You know, he, he owns quite a bit of property there on Uniontown, Kansas. And uh, I think I, I shot you a message. And you're like, yeah, that'll work. Um, and it's no small thing to give away a walnut tree because, um, or to offer one up, because the one thing we learned about is you can have an expensive damn. Oh, yeah. I mean, it takes like a perfect, there's, a there's it's, I don't understand it well enough, but a veneer grade. Yep. Walnut. Where they're taking off like uh, paper thin concentric circles. Yep. Off of a walnut, and when you get one of those, and there's no branches and no yeah. blemishes, you can have a tree that's worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember the exact number he had mentioned while we were there. Like his neighbor just sold like a black walnut for ten thousand dollars or yeah, something. Yeah, it was because it was uh, it was there was a they're building a bank, and the bank wanted walnut veneer on the walls of the bank in certain conference rooms and stuff, but they wanted it all to match. All like, yeah. So they had to find, they wanted like one walnut. And and, and when you take that veneer off what we're talking about, I remember someone saying that someone handed us a business card and it felt like a pretty heavy duty business card, but it was a business card. Yep. And wasn't it like three or four layers laminated together? It's thin. Yeah. Yeah. I think Joe, the the mill, the owner of the mill handed us a business card, you know, because being a mill guy, you got to have a business card made out of yeah, veneer. veneer. Um, but yeah, he told us like veneer thinner than this. Yeah. And it was, it was like a few of them, but yep. anyways, so when they finally found like the tree yep. that you could do the whole damn bank in it. Yes. Yeah, valuable yep. tree, man. Yeah. Like half, um, a, like half of a, half of a truck, half of a used truck. I guess, yeah. <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> so we, we kind of scouted the property. Um, Randy kind of pre-scouted a little bit for us and, you know, there were some options he had, um, but we had went there, um, settled on a pretty good straight black walnut. Um, we'll talk here in a little bit about kind of, as we look at the tree, kind of how many, you know, you're looking at that tree, like that's a thousand pot calls worth or that, you know, we weren't looking at it like, you know, what, we, uh, what else we were going to get out of it or what yeah, value I kept thinking, like, how many are hiding in there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. we cut down. Be like and, looking at a chicken and being like, how many dry flies are in that chicken? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that chicken's feathers. Um, found a, a good osage orange and then, um. Me with this, like, I'm going to blame it on their technique, this whole Eastern, uh, like, sawing technique that I split the wood in half. Crazy-ass sawing technique. Yeah, we won't get into that, so I, I wasted our first hedge. Well, um, but the, are you going to explain the technique and why oh, they do it? Yeah, yeah, we'll get into okay, that a little yeah. bit more. So I wasted a wasted one Osage. Um, we went to another one that actually probably ended up being a better option that was right next to it. Got it, fell. Yeah, you barber, um, you barber chaired it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm blaming it on their technique. Like, I'm from the, I'm from the coastal rainforest where we cut trees way different yeah. than this technique. I'd never cut a tree like that. Um, I was scared. I was, working on a big tree like that, I was scared because I was in unknown territory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, we were just kind of relying on them a little bit to walk us through the technique. Um, so then we loaded these trees up on a big uh, flatbed and we shipped them about an hour south to Walnut, Kansas, where we spent the next day um, milling these you know logs up to our specs. We knew we you know needed five quarters for some warping and some splitting as these you know dried on the pallet and, and, um, and then as they dried in the kiln. So we, we set everything up to what we needed to build our ultimate pot calls out. I like of. to point out that was Walnut, Kansas. 
Was. We we processed the walnut in Walnut, Kansas. And I can't think about that day without thinking about the chiggers, though, because oh man, we were like way dialed. When we were out cutting the trees, you know, I did all the everything you're supposed to do. I like did like permethrin on my clothes. <laughs> I like pulled my pants down, did my waistline and ankles and deet, like everything. Yep. As textbook. Then we're like, well, oh, we're going to the mill, you know? And I'm when I'm picturing the mill, I don't know, I'm picturing like being in a building with a concrete floor. <laughs> yeah. So I got like sneakers on, like don't do anything. Yep. And I get to the the mill is, you know, out in the yeah, out in the, the backyard. Of the field. Yep. Yeah, just like equipment out in the field and had no idea, dude, but I suffered for oh, weeks after that. I got lit up and I had them little baby ticks all over in my calf. It was, yeah, it wasn't good. No. Um, I'll always think of that. I can't like think of, I, I honestly, I won't be able to look at these calls without feeling a little itchy. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody that gets one of these things, they should feel a little itchy when they pick them. Like we, we got tore up for these calls. Yeah, bad. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. So we're out in the out in the woods, um, looking at these trees. I just want to 
explain a little bit. You know, there, there are board foot calculations. I know as the call designer, like when I go in to build a call, I need about 0.2 board feet per call, you know, and, and just to go over the board foot calculation for everybody that doesn't know, we're looking at however many inches thick this board is by however many inches wide the board is. Um, by how long it is in feet, and then we'll divide it by 12, and you ultimately get like 144 cubic inches makes a board foot. So if I called someone, i still not totally clear on this. If I called a vendor yep. and said, I want you to send me one board foot of walnut, yep, I would get in the mail what? You would have to, they would then ask you, how do you want that board foot? Do you want it in four quarters by four inches wide? Do you want it in four quarters by six inches wide? Do you want it in six quarters by, and then your length would then depend on like how much you, you know, how long it was would depend on the, the, the width and the thickness of that board. But the volume, Is the volume of what I'm getting doesn't change. No, no. You can okay. get one board foot in a perfect square block, or you can get one board foot in like a board. I got you. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's just a measurement of volume. I see. Um, so we kind of knew that going in. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, we got Oh some... yeah, you know why that I'm confused about that now? Now I remember. You knew the thickness. Yep. So, I, all right. I knew I needed... So I was always visualizing a board foot and what you were talking about, but I wasn't thinking that, let's say you had to make a thing that was three inches thick, then your whole... He damn sure not better send you a board that's one inch thick. Yep, yep. Yeah. So we knew we needed a five quarter by a four inch board. That's right. Is our blank, and yep. then the length just needed to be enough to get, you know, uh, you know, all those calls. And then we could basically divide that by the point. Because because the, the end in the end the call is how thick? The call ends up being right at just a hair over three quarters of an inch thick. And you go over by how much? Um, so we went five quarters. So we were actually cutting these boards to a true dimensional one point two five, and that was to account for all the warp. Um, we have to plane all of these. And even on some of these boards we got off, we're going to actually lose a call at the end of the boards because by the time we plane them, they got too thin. Huh. So it's just, that's why we had to be so, you're literally giving up a half an inch, um, you know, uh, on the board that, that's going to go to waste while you're milling it compared to what we're going to get out of the out of the board. But when you buy it from like Joe's Lumber, you buy it the same way? You oh, it ask. comes, well, we'll buy it four quarters in because it's clean. Already been milled. Yeah, we know that it's going to be perfectly straight, and we won't have any waste on that. I see. Um, so part of that was just knowing you're getting into like a. Yep. Yeah, we're not grade, buying that. You're going to have to grade it yourself. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, so we were doing a lot of you know all of the 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 measurements are like we brought Seth along to help us you know forestry degree and but a lot of the dimensions are just taken at what's called breast height you know so a normal humans about four and a half feet. Um, their breast height, you, you take a measurement on what they think that diameter is. You know, those, some of the guys that were working with us, with us there, they're so experienced. They kind of just hugged the tree, kind of figured out, well, I think that's about a 24 incher. And then you can kind of go to a chart, you know, there's two different dimensions. There's like a Doyle chart and then there's like a, a quarter inch chart. And that kind of gives you an idea of how many board feet they think they're going to get based on like a 16 foot straight section. Yeah. And those, those dudes we were with that deal in a lot of lumber, they're also looking at the big limbs. Yep. And they just kind of, that's just like seriously eyeballing, but he's just yep. looking up in the tree and being like, oh, X more yep. on that limb. That limb's probably nothing. Yeah. Or if they had a curve to them, like even when that dries, the board's just going to go completely crazy and it's not going to be usable anyways. You know, so they were, they were walking through all that or that limb's 10 feet long. Yeah. Oh, but, that was, I forgot that too. Like 
depending Stress. on the limb's length and how yep. it was oriented to the tree, he would gauge like how it's going to dry. Yeah. And he'd be like, you're going to have a mess. Yeah. Because like, that limb will be a mess. I mean, you got to think of that limb as basically like a big diving board, right? So the bottom side of that tree is having to, you know, it's under a bunch of stress compared or the, the top side of the tree's intention, the bottom's in compression, you know? So you're trying to, you know, think of when that board dries, it's going to want to settle out and it's going to get all warped and yep. and messed up. So, you know what, uh, I was down in the, when I was down in South America, they have a lot of those buttressed, those big jungle trees that have like the buttress roots. Yep. Uh, and some of these buttress roots, you could cut a tabletop out of them. It's huge. I mean, it's like you're standing at the tree and the the buttress, which looks like a descending ridge line, coming off the tree is taller than you. And it looks like it's like positioned to sort of like block the tree up. But they're explaining that that's a cable pulling on that tree yeah it's just like a it's not reinforced it's not like it's not like it up it's yeah it's not like uh it. i guess building a retaining wall yeah it's, it's pulling it it's, down that, tr- of, that thing's going yeah to try to get it back where it should be yeah yeah that makes like, kind of like logging with the big yarder all those cables just kind of pulling pulling that thing into being straight up versus, yep, exactly um next i want to get into like the crazy way they w- they taught us to cut these trees down and we kind of just, you know, when you're in, when you're in their uh, ballpark, you play by their rules. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I came in from, I live in maybe the timber capital of the world there in, in Southwest Washington, you know, a bunch of come from a long lineage of tree fallers and we show up and, and I think there was some wind damage or a big storm right before we got there. And they actually had to cut a tree down before we got there. Oh, they had the junk laying everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And they kind of, I, I think I kind of stood there and kind of got out of the way, but kind of watched and. Like what in the hell are they doing? It's it's zero because they're dealing with high dollar hardwoods. Yeah, so I mean that they extra, have a zero waste cut. Yeah, their stump is literally flush with the ground, and they don't knock a they don't knock a wedge out. No, no, just because you'd be throwing away, yeah, hundred bucks. I don't know. Yep, they put a little teeny face cut in, just a little one. Remember yeah. we we had just. But a, I mean, it's like they yep. th- you're losing a saw width. Yep. And they core, ugh, it's, so, you always have to make like a diagram. Yeah. So, so scary. I didn't, I thought it was scary doing that. So I'll do my best to describe it and you can add some details. Um, we cut a small face cut into the direction we wanted the tree to fall. And normally after you cut your larger face cut in like a Douglas fir tree around home, you then come in from the backside of the log and, and steer your saw perfectly square to that direction. And you approach your, your holding wood. Um, yep. I can't remember if you're up you know, a little high or whatever, but you approach your, your wood until the tree starts to, to tip and you get out of there. Well, here we cut our face notch in a lot shallower. Um, Down more, in the dirt. Yeah, more <laughs> offset towards the way you want. And then you came directly behind the holding wood and you dogged the nose of your saw in and left that one inch. So now you've basically got your saw stuck to the center of the tree, hold, you know, notch, let's say, to the right. And then you saw your way out the back side of the tree. And hollow the whole thing out. Yeah. And then when you get to the end, you, they want you to kind of work a little bit quick and just kind of zip through and then the tree falls. Yeah. So you got, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You got a face cut, you got a gap of wood, then the whole damn tree's gone and you got the other face just barely holding on and you just nick that thing. Yep. And then the tree falls. It's a clean it cut. It worked. Yeah. And I mean, they literally, you know, at home... We, we leave a two-foot stump, you know, so you go to a clear cut and there's a, all these damn stumps everywhere. Um, this thing's literally, like, if, if somebody didn't tell you you're walking through the wood that there's a tree cut down over there, I mean, you wouldn't know it was there. It's, drive, it's flush. Drive a lawnmower over. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was flush. So it was a kind of a cool little way that they, they showed us. And like I said, we were in their arena. That's how they were comfortable cutting trees down. So oh, I know how people can, I know how people can learn what we're talking about. They don't need a diagram. The video. They can watch the damn video. Yeah. 
man, that tree you fell. I got, I had 50 ticks on my hand when I went to reach for that damn camera. They were everywhere. Um, so then we took them down to the mill. We'll, we'll fast forward to that, loaded them up with skid steers, you know, loaders, all of that. Got them, got them chained down on the Yeah, we kind of bucked it into just whatever natural. We didn't, we didn't buck it to length. No, we bucked it to. Whatever made to the tree. points where we were going to, you know, things were getting curvy or we were going to yeah. start to lose, you know, to limbs and whatnot. Just what made sense for, for good lumber. Um, and then we, we moseyed on down the next morning to uh, Walnut, Kansas, down to the mill. And Big ass bandsaw out in the field. Yep, yep. And so we we loaded, I think, walnut on first. You know, they take their cuts. They start to see what we're actually, you know, you don't know what you got until you start to open up the wood. And we could tell right away it was going to be, um, you know, really pretty wood. And so we started loading the walnuts up, got those all cut at five quarters. Uh, new for an Osage, you know, the, you know, based on different woods, Osage is really, really hard. It's got like a specific gravity of 0.8. So it's really heavy. Matter of fact, I think I've seen a statistic. It's got like one of the highest... Uh, BTU ratings, like for firewood, like it's going to burn the hottest. Oh, it, it, so it's got the most energy stored up in it. So it's a real dense, yeah. white, one of the reasons it makes an absolute amazing striker. Um, so we cut that at, at four quarters, knowing that a striker was going to end up being, you know, right at three quarters of an inch on a, on an Osage by my my designs. And so we milled the the Osage up at four quarters, uh, milled the the walnut up at, at five quarters, and then kind of just told them, you know, what the optimum boards to ship to the the kiln was going to be. Yeah, I want to. I want to add a thing quick about these dudes that we milled with. They used to have. There was an old gas well on their property, and the gas well went dry, but it has, still has natural gas in it. They had their. They had rigged up where they were pulling. Get they were pulling natural gas, like next to their mill, and then they had a natural gas. Whatever the hell we yep. call it, saw. Yep. They converted this old tractor engine to burn natural gas, and that powered their old mill. Yeah, and they had thing, like a totally self-contained unit. The, and then I think about the old mill. Like I just, I sit there and kind of scratch my head, and then I kind of, kind of walk away. Like, man, these guys just do what they need to do. Like, they had this old tractor motor that was the the drivetrain was hooked to an old rubber tire, and that's what fed the logs. <laughs> they pulled a lever of a spinning rubber tire that would spit the log to through. engage the blade. Yeah, yeah that yeah. would engage the blade, and then it spun the log through. And I'm just like. This can't be like OSHA approved, but no, we're, if, you, uh, if you looked around a while, I think you'd find some limbs. <laughs> you'd be like, oh, there's a thumb bone. <laughs> yeah. But, but I kind of like that. I mean, I don't know if hopefully that comes out in the story, but like, this is the way that some of this, this stuff gets done. Like just real, you know, down to earth people running mills out in their backfield. Yeah. Um, that's how you get some of this, this lumber, um, shipped it to a kiln. We decided to ship the green lumber, meaning wet, no drying at all. The green lumber got put on a, um, semi-truck and shipped to Addy, Washington, where we had it shipped to a kiln. Um, the nice thing about a kiln, so if I was to just take those those boards that we milled up and say we wax the ends so we can control the way that the board actually dried out, we don't want the board to dry out the ends. We want the board to dry out like on its its face of a surface so it doesn't crack. Yep. So you'd wax or paint the ends of the board, let it dry. We usually say that it takes about a year per inch of thickness. So hmm. we just don't have that kind of time, right? So you, we use these kilns to speed up this process to get Oh, us, that's natural. That's ambient. Yeah, yeah. So okay. if I was just to throw it in a, in a shop and put little dunnage, you know, little spacer sticks in between it so air can get all around it, it's going to take a year and inch. Um, 
We didn't have that kind of time. Well, is the kiln a different quality of drying, or is it just you wind up with the same thing? It just you, take, you it's still just end quicker. up. I mean, ultimately, our optimum moisture content is around seven to eight percent. So oh, I need you're landing in the same place. Yeah, I need yeah. that moisture content so that board is done moving at the time we put a drill bit, a you know, a mill, a lathe, anything to it. Any of the process that board's not going to move or warp on us anymore. Yep. Um. So we're shooting for eight percent. Now, what the kiln does is you put a bunch of steam vapor. In there, so you're actually adding moisture to the situation, but then you can draw that moisture down in like a controlled process, um, so you don't get all the splitting and warping as much. You can control that a lot more by basically bringing up the moisture to what the board has, and then slowly oh, inside of a controlled you. environment yep. pull that out. Um, not to bore everybody with that process, it's just it took us about six weeks to get our um, Osage and Walnut down to that seven and eight percent. And then from there, we have to look at these boards that we now have ranging anywhere from eight to 12 inches and kind of pick out what's going to give us our best boards. If we need two four-inch strips, some of it's going to go to waste anyway. So we're kind of looking, evaluating the boards, where are checks, where are soft spots, where are knots, you know, entered into that board. And we kind of just go back and, and we're kind of doing our best to kind of grade the lumber or kind of cherry pick what we want out of it. So where you're at now, um, how many do you think we're hiding in that tree? So we think, and we, you know, with a, I'm going to give some of our tips away or tricks, but, but we're completely transparent on this process. We think we can get about 1,450. Oh, really? Pots. We're going to say we're shooting. So we're doing better than our, 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 we're doing way better than our goal of that. We wanted a tree with a thousand in it. Yep. Um, so I think we're going to be around 1,400 and that's to give us 50 extras. And because along the process, if you have a tool catch, you know, a pot, it blows up. Well, you're like, well. All right, number 1342 is missing. You know, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> we got to replace it. And so you got to kind of shoot for a number lower than what you have. Um, and then my knife handle. That yeah, takes we keep a getting these damn requests for knife handles and stuff that are cut. No, that, that's going to be an extra. That's just basically going to be scrap. Um, so we're shooting for 1400. And what that's going to end up giving us, and we haven't talked about it a lot, we've decided on a pure crystal surface. So not glass. We went pure crystal over a Pennsylvanian slate. Um, tone board inside of the walnut pot. And then we're going to have a one piece custom, uh, Osage orange striker. One piece. One piece. No, oh. we, we ended up being able to make that happen after a lot, a lot of, I, I'm like, come on, pressure's on guys. Like you need to just like, so there's times where I'm not going to lie, super inefficient to like literally run. We take a one by one, one inch by one inch piece of Osage, run it through a dowling machine. So it basically spits out a broom handle, but normally you want to get like three to four foot broom handles. We're getting, 16 inch broom handle, oh, but really? that's just to get one more striker out of, out of the board. But do you think you're going to be able to match it in strikers? Yeah, that's what, that's where we, but like you'll, you'll get the like, number. The, the, the concern with the lower number was if we were to just, if this was mass production and, and, uh, like efficiency and, and time was involved, we wouldn't have got that many. But since we said, all right, let's throw the efficiency away and just go hunt for every single striker and every piece of Osage we have, they were able to go like pull these ones and twos out of boards where we would normally scrap and just say it's worth burning. Yeah. So, now, when you when you watch the video, you'll see the Osage too. Yep. Yep. You'll see where it came from. So we've got that. All pack. I mean, just everything we're doing on this is the, uh, like Steve said earlier, just create an experience to go along with that pot call. And, and I think um, when everybody kind of sees the end product, they're going to agree like there, there isn't a pot call with, you know, this much thought put into anything as far as even the dang packaging that we decided to come up with just, you know, everything from, from top to bottom on this is we didn't, ex, you know, we didn't spare any expenses in the process, tried to make just a, a real one-off, you know, the art on the call is going to be, 
you know, um, kind of one-off. Nobody else has did this again. So I'm, I'm really excited. Oh, that's um, beautiful, man. Yeah, yeah, it turned out great. I mean, the whole thing's beautiful. And uh, tell people when they're going to be done. These Line 1 calls should be available right now at TheMeatEater.com. You know the term Line 1? There's a line of uh, cattle that they've uh, been researching for a long time. It's called like the Line 1 Hereford. Yep. And I always like that. And I always made me wonder about the line two Hereford. Yeah, I mean, we'll I don't know where it. he is. We'll but so when we're thinking about, I was like, no, it's the first one. It's the line one. Yeah, no, I, I love the name. When you yeah. kind of, I think we were in Kansas when you brought that up. I'm like, I don't see any, I don't have any objections to that name. And, you know, for a while there, we had kind of like, kind of coined it treat a turkey. Since yep. our intention at the end of this is for me and you to hopefully go back there one of these years, whenever our schedules line up and kill a turkey from the on stump. that property. And the funny story you don't like is, this part, but I think I'm going to do it from the stump. For, you're going to sit on that stump? I'm going to sit I, on I love that it. stump. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, a funny story. I hunted with Randy this year. I literally killed my turkey within no no more than a quarter mile from where this the walnut in the Osage was cut down. Yeah. So Turkeys cool have definitely walked under that tree. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. It, it's a good piece of property. Yep. Randy does a good job there. Has got a lot of turkeys. All right, we went a little bit long there on the line one discussion, but what this podcast is meant to do is bring you tips and tactics, and we don't want to leave without asking Steve a question um, to kind of get some of his input um, on one of these questions. So I'm going to pose a situation for Steve. You're in an area with good bird numbers, all kinds of good turkey habitat. You know, you got a good mix of ag, roost trees, feed, cover, everything a turkey needs, nesting. Um, But the state you're hunting only lets you get a tag that's good for two hours of the day. So hmm. you're going to have to pick your time, whether you want to be from... I like the state. It's an interesting okay. state. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, you can pick a time from, let's say, roost to, mm-hmm. to 7.30, whatever it is. Um, what time are you going to choose? 9 to 11. 9 to 11. Yeah. Can you give me... Maybe 10... No, 9 to 11. I was vacillating between 10 to 12 and 9, 9 to 11. Here's the thing. If... Uh, you got to be there since day. Like, I don't like going out late. You hear about people that get older and they just get up, eat breakfast, and go in the woods. Like, I like to be there as part of the package to be there from dawn. I like to be there at daybreak. I want to hear them on the trees. Yep. I like all that. But there's a thing that happens where if I'm sitting there in the dark and I hear a turkey, I don't have overwhelming confidence <laughs> that I'm going to kill that turkey. But there's something about 10 a.m. You're half thinking about taking a nap, you know? Yep. And you haven't heard anything in a couple hours. It's been pretty slow. And at 10 a.m., all of a sudden, pow. I always get like, we're going to kill that bird. Yeah, yeah. That, that bird, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's exactly, yeah. I mean, like he's like done doing, like when he came out of the tree, he had like an agenda. He's like got his hands. He's, he's just, he's just got, he's going to some specific spot, whatever he's going to, whatever he's going to do. He just, they seem to oftentimes, like they, they know what they're going to do when yep. they get out of bed. Yep. And then it gets late morning, and they seem to enter. Uh, there's fact, there's variables like what where they're at in the breeding yep, cycle yep, yep, and yep. nesting and all that. But you get birds that they get to be around that time of day, and all of a sudden it's like he's got free time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, yeah. And when he hammers off there, you're like, he probably doesn't have a hen with him, you know. Yeah. Or if he does, he's not. He's like, now what am I going to do? I don't feel like uh, I don't feel like just laying around dusting. I feel still yep. got a little spunk. Yeah. And he and, sounds off, then I get real excited. Yeah, and that's. <laughs> 
you know, so you're saying if I could paraphrase, you'd be a spectator. You'd still go out. You just wouldn't carry your shotgun from daylight. Oh, that's how to, I would handle to, it. To nine thirty, you're just still going to go out there for that experience. But you're going to walk back to your your truck at ten and grab I'd your gun. I checked the regs. I checked the regs, make sure it was okay for me to just go listen, <laughs> and then I'd go back and get my gun. No, I'd go get my gun at nine o'clock because okay. I wanted to be ready for ten o'clock. Okay, <laughs> so you're trying to hit it like prime in the middle there. Yeah, I might even take uh, a little nap. I might okay. take a nap. I might take a twenty minute nap from like at nine ten, sleep to nine thirty, and then get ready for my ten a.m. Got gotcha. Because this question stemmed from, you know, me being uh, a young turkey hunter, you know, high school, I would bomb, jump in my car, bomb over to Eastern Washington where we had all the turkeys and, and go. And, you know, we were up two hours before daylight, you know, hiking in, we want to sit under the tree. We'd watch those birds for, you know, a day or two do this. And you'd go set up thinking you're and you'd never kill them off the damn roost. I don't know if it's because I accidentally made a noise. Um, screwed them up, or, but no matter what, I can pattern turkeys for 20 days in a row, do the same thing. And I sit under that tree on the 21st day and they will not do what I need them to do to mm-hmm. kill them. I don't know what it is. I don't know if they've got like a, a sensor. Maybe it's because I can't keep my damn call to myself. Why they got a the tracking tree. device on you. Um, but the old timers there used to say, we'll let you young bucks get up and get the turkeys all ready for us. We're going to sleep in. We're going to eat a good breakfast. When you guys are now taking your nap or coming in to eat breakfast or lunch, we're going to go out and kill the turkeys. We're going to come out and kill all your turkeys. Yeah. And well, the real old timers would go out at night and crawl in under the tree. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's just, it's curious. I, I think I'm with you, especially as it gets, you know, later, later April, early May, at least where I hunt, um, you know, that, that midday is just kind of, you know, that, that, like you said, that's the bird that when it gobbles, you're like, we got this one. Yeah. Um. No, I like it. I like it. So, Steve, why we've got you here before we close, if you had any tip or tactic that you can give to a new turkey hunter to maybe help them find some success, like what's the most important thing as a new turkey hunter um, that you would, you'd share, you know, you'd care to share with them? Uh, yeah, man. It's so hard. Cause what I want to say, like everything has exceptions. Yep. What I want to say is developing the ability uh, until you start learning turkey behavior develop the ability to control your impulses. Like you're going to make a, you're going to make more as a beginning Turkey hunter, you're going to make more mistakes of moving too soon and being too aggressive early on. You're going to move too soon to be too aggressive and bump too many turkeys. Yep. Later, when you start learning a lot more, you'll learn like just how aggressive you can be, but it doesn't, things might not happen as quick as you want them to happen. And if you got a bird and you're calling to it, working it, and he leaves, um, learning when it's like, man, I would go in that direction, but I can tell by how loud the leaves are, by how open the country is, there's just no way. Yeah, that plan. I'm going to get up and he's going to see me. Yep. Um, so early on, be like, I don't know. Admit to yourself, I don't know a ton about birds yet. Every part of me wants to get up, but I also know that me, that I'm being, that I'm, I'm probably going to blow it. And just be a little more patient until you get good enough and you've watched enough turkeys to start being a little more adventurous. Yep. But I screwed up a lot by going too hard, and then there he is staring at you. Yep. Yeah, so cautious, patience, a little more uh, as a beginner until you kind of learn, you know, what you can get away with and what you can't. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Like, learning what you can get away with. Yep. You know, learning, like, I shouldn't, but in this, like, you'll, you'll wind up saying this to yourself. I shouldn't do this, but I know that right now it's okay. Yep. You know? And and one thing, I mean, what you're saying is in order to learn that though, you're going to bump birds. I yep. mean, even with being cautious, he's, I think Steve's telling you to be a little bit 
extra cautious. Like air on the side of, but air on the side of not moving. But then to ultimately learn what you can and can't get away with, you're going to have to bump birds somewhere down the line. But to start with, just like you say, be a little more reserved. I really appreciate having you here, Steve. Um, So what we're going to say is go check out themeateater.com somewhere on or around the 24th. Yep. Line one turkey call, a really cool experience. Like I say, I, I kind of joke with Steve as I thought his idea was, wasn't great and I didn't like it to begin with, but um, I became a believer about halfway through the process and I'm really excited to see this through. If you had to pick one time and you wanted to maybe see Steve out in the turkey woods under a tree, you're going to want to go between 9 and 11 because mm-hmm. that was the time that Steve picked um, for, for being out there as far as notching you know his turkey tag on a turkey. Um, and other than that, if you're a new turkey hunter... Um, maybe uh, be a little more cautious until you kind of get the, the turkeys figured out what you can get away with and what As you a friend of mine put it, when you feel like doing something, don't. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, Steve. All right, thanks, man. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill.